0: Hello and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. Have you ever heard of Blombo's Cave? Blombo's Cave is an archeological site located in South Africa. And what makes it significant is the discovery there of a piece of red ochre that had incised in it, maybe with another stone, uh, certain lines and cross-hatching patterns. You can actually see a copy or a picture of this archaeological find, but it's been dated to somewhere between 75,000 and 100,000 years ago. What makes it significant, it's the first known human artifact that appears to use abstractions for some sort of communication. An abstraction, an abstract symbol, symbolism, is like using what we think of as the numeral one to indicate one of a kind, two to indicate two of a kind. Symbolic thinking, abstract symbol making, is the basis for human language. It's how I'm able to talk to you now. And you understand these sounds I'm making as indicating something in reality. Human beings who just think symbolically, like ducks take to water, take the significance of symbolic thinking, and I'm not sure that they always think about how it has changed what it means to be an animal. Because the truth of human beings is we are animals, we're not part animal, we are animals. But there is an aspect of us that is not animal, and so we would say body and soul, flesh and spirit. But one of the great visible signs of the spiritual nature of the human being is the use of these abstract uh, signs and language and numbers. Abstract thinking makes metaphor and simile and analogy possible that you can say something is like something. Uh, A mother who zealously defends her children is like a mama bear. Um, You know, dolphins and dogs and your cat and a goldfish probably can't do anything like that because they just lack the apparatus which makes symbolic thinking possible. So there is a physical animal part of our capacity for language, but also this gift of the human soul, what it means to be a person uh, in image and likeness of God. So what symbolic thinking does, that is so critical to being a human being, is that symbolic thinking is also the basis for reason. Animals, or some animals of a higher order, share intelligence. Chimpanzees are intelligent. Dolphins are very intelligent. You probably think your dog is intelligent, and in some way, he is intelligent. He can manipulate the heck out of you by just wagging his tail. But reason is different from intelligence, uh, related but not identical. What makes human beings significant is that we can make judgments on our choices, literally, We can judge our judgments. It's the basis of moral thinking, where moral thinking is something more than just thinking of, I don't listen to mom, I will get punished. That is a lower order of moral thinking. The higher order of moral thinking is when you wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and think about something you said or did the day before, and you go, gosh, I wish I hadn't done that. Doesn't matter if you ever get caught, because when you are reasoning about your choices, when you are judging your judgments, you are an animal capable of judging themselves. But you know, this possibility of using reason to understand God's way and using reason to, in a sense, disconnect us from purely animal instinct is kind of a mixed bag. Because with symbolic thinking also comes the possibility of ritual, uh, scripture, the Eucharistic prayer. It also makes possible ritualistic uses of cannibalism or child sacrifice. In fact, Blombo's cave in that area was found uh, examples of human cannibalism, humans uh, eating other human beings. And I think I'm right when I say that cannibalism doesn't appear to happen absent some ritual meaning. Um, people don't necessarily eat other people as a means of sustenance, like in the Donner party. It doesn't actually not happen. But when it happens in a time in a place where people have other sources of food, well, tracking down and killing another human being or eating your neighbor is not your first, first choice. Often in our recorded history, it has some kind of um, ritualistic meaning about gaining power. And so that's abstract thinking too. So our reason, it can lead us to the light. It can take us deeper into the darkness. It partakes of this fallen human nature. What reason also does, and the use of abstract thinking, is it allows us to create group thinking. Not just herds that are uh, common by species or groups common by family, which really uh, both can exist, like in nationalism or the experience of, of a really closed-in family. But abstract thinking also allows us to make in-groups and out-groups like Democrats and Republicans, Catholic and Protestant, atheist and theist, where we are formed by the way that we think about reality. So let's think about all of this, because somehow the light and the dark are mixed into our capacity for abstract thinking, for our use of reason. So is good and evil. And so with that in mind, thinking about the in-group, the out-group, all formed by ideas, let's take a moment Let's talk about the gospel for the third Sunday of Ordinary Time. When we began talking about Blombo's Cave, the power of abstract thinking and language, let's take that way of thinking as we examine Luke's gospel for the third Sunday of Ordinary Time. And I'm going to deal with this in two different parts of Oral Valley Catholic, because the reading from the third chapter—I mean, the third Sunday of Ordinary Time—really encompasses the first four chapters of Luke's Gospel, the very beginning of the Gospel, starting with Luke 1, chap, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. I will deal with in the next portion of the podcast. But to set that up, I want to talk about the second part of this Sunday's reading which begins in chapter four of Luke's gospel. And in chapter four of Luke's gospel, it says that Jesus came in power to his hometown of Nazareth, where he'd spent almost all of his life. And he's amongst the people that he knows. He's part of the group. He is known uh, in that town. Then he stands up in the synagogue, the local synagogue, And mostly Jews were formed by their interaction, men and women, in the synagogue. A Jewish man and woman might go to Jerusalem, even from Galilee, maximum three times a year. But on Shabbat, they were probably found in the synagogue. And in the synagogue, there were two readings for Shabbat service. The first would be from the Torah. The second would be from any of the other books of the Old Testament. In the story today, it's a prophet, Isaiah. On that first reading, the scribes and the Pharisees would comment because they were considered to be the learned people in the law and given the power to run the local synagogue. But as to the second reading from Isaiah, which is what Jesus uses, um, a lay person who is considered thoughtful and learned would be allowed to stand up and offer their insights. And so here's everybody. Jesus stands up. He opens up the prophet Isaiah and he reads this according to Luke chapter four. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim a year acceptable to the Lord. Now, Isaiah is part of the Old Testament and it's this Hebrew scripture that forms the group identity of the Jewish people and specifically the people in Nazareth. What that little pericope from Isaiah is referring to is a book in the Torah called Leviticus and especially a part, I think, um, that's about uh, priests and and holiness. And so in Leviticus, what was provided for was what was called a Jubilee year. And it's all built around the number seven, which is the number of creation. So seven times seven years gives you 49 years. You add one to get to the 50th year, and that would be the Jubilee year. And under Leviticus, that means every debt is forgiven. A land is returned to the family that originally owned it. If you have a student loan, all done. Now, that sounds like a pretty liberal economic policy where everybody goes back to ground zero every 50 years, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of historical evidence that it was ever practiced. It's interesting that it was included in Leviticus, but Jesus is using this passage, which was supposed to be an actual practice amongst the people of Israel, and he is using it in the way that Isaiah intended it, not simply as an economic practice uh, amongst the life of the people of Israel, but something that the Messiah was gonna do, that the acceptable year is a jubilee year when the people's sins are all forgiven. And so when Jesus says that he's, this passage is fulfilled, in your presence. He's not saying throughout of all of Galilee, all debts are now forgiven, nobody owes anybody anything. What he's proclaiming is the mercy of God. And so what happens? Well, we'll know next week, but I'll give you the, what you probably all you remember. He's rejected. So what happens when you're part of the in-group, but you understand things differently than the in-group understands it. All you have to do is go on social media. And if you're a great critic of, of, of the Republicans or a great critic of the Democrats or a great critic of the bishops, whatever it is, if someone who identifies with your group then turns on the group and says, you know, maybe you're being unfair and we need to rethink this, rarely does a thoughtful conversation occur. What happens instead is everybody attacks because this is heterodoxy. This is heresy, according to whatever the formation principle for that group is. Group thinking is really important. Scripture forms us as a community, but it also leads to this in-group thinking. And if you remember the story about Jesus talking about the wheat and the tarries, about weeds growing up amongst the wheat. It's a story about the nature of evil. When we think about evil, and that's really what is involved in this story in Nazareth in chapter 4, as the subtext, evil for a Christian is a privation of the good. Everything God created is good. Nothing God creates is evil. And so St. Augustine reasoned that Somehow evil must then be a corruption of the good because evil is not a power contrary to God. It's something that corrupts and, and uh, makes fall uh, the goodness that God intended. So group formation is a good thing because we are formed by good parents. We're formed by a healthy culture. But what happens when there's a dark part of all of that too? None of us forms ourselves. Nobody's a self-made person. Culture and community was fundamentally important to the human health of the individual. Common understandings, how we reason. And often what that means for you and me is that we have shortcut way of thinking. We don't reason through everything. Often enough, if we trust someone, say a parent, or the lawyer that's supposed to help you, you just trust what they have to say. In our culture, what that leads to is tribalization, just like every other culture, where if the Republicans say it, it's good, if the Democrats say it, it's bad, Uh, and just extrapolate from there as to some some of our problems. But from a metaphysical perspective, from a religious perspective, what it says is that evil this dark side somehow is seeded into the good by the very nature of the good. And so in Blombo's cave, the uh, first uh, light of abstract thinking and language is also somewhat cautionary because right outside the cave, people are practicing probably ritual cannibalism uh, and seeing some meaning in slaughtering and eating other people. Nature on its own uh, simply turns in on itself and it's why when Jesus talks about the acceptable year he's talking about the arrival of grace and why grace is necessary for salvation. We will not find our way to God based on just herd instinct or just our natural instincts. Um, We need something to help us out and that's the gift of grace. So why should we trust what Jesus said in chapter 4 of Luke? That's why now we're going to turn to the very beginning of the gospel for the third Sunday at Ordinary Time, which comes from the first chapter of Luke. So that fourth chapter in Luke, Jesus gives good news. Uh, He's part of the in-group. He should be trusted by his neighbors that he will tell them the truth, but they reject him. They can't believe that a local boy that they saw grow up with Joseph and Mary, who was a local handyman, somehow is the Messiah and brings the Jubilee year, which which the people of Nazareth should rejoice over. Why do they reject this good news and want to destroy him? That's because he's part of the group, but he's preaching something the group's not ready to accept, and so the group rejects them. But why doesn't the reader of Scripture reject them? Why are you open to this claim? And it's because of what Luke does in chapters 1, 2, and 3, so that you understand what happens in chapter 4. Because God appeals to our reason and helps us to understand how it is that he operates in our lives. And so this is the part of Luke's gospel, which begins the reading for the third Sunday of ordinary time. And it's from Luke 1, chapter 1. Since many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the events that have been fulfilled amongst us, just as those who are eyewitnesses from the beginning and ministers of the word have handed them down to us, I too have decided, after investigating everything accurately anew, to write it down in an orderly sequence for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may realize the certainty of the teachings you have received. And it then skips to chapter 4. What is missing before you get to chapter 4? The angel appearing to Mary, Mary's visitation to Elizabeth, the Magnificat, um, and and, then Zechariah's canticle, the birth of John the Baptist, um, and then all of the other mysteries that are talked about, about Jesus' baptism, the, uh, the voice from heaven, the descent of the Holy Spirit, his temptation in the desert. All, we, the reader, know all of that backstory because Luke tells us that backstory. The people in Nazareth don't necessarily know any of that. But why should you believe the backstory? And it's... How Luke begins his gospel. Luke was a companion of St. Paul. Remember, the second part of Luke is called Acts. And in Acts, it completes the story of the early church. And Acts probably is written before Paul dies because in Acts of the Apostles, St. Stephen is killed and his death is is, uh, recounted by Luke. St. James is killed, his death is recounted by Luke. So if Paul had died when he would written Acts, how come he doesn't tell us about Paul or Peter's death for that matter? So to put Luke in this maybe first generation, second generation of believers, you're getting how the church understood the whole story of of Jesus. And the fact that Luke had access to Mary because Mary is in the story of the gospel. She's also at uh, Pentecost when the Holy Spirit uh, descends. So he's writing this story for his sponsor, Theophilus, whose name means friend of God. And he says specifically that he's providing a narrative of events. These are not mythic stories, but he's setting it out in an orderly way that he himself is investigated by talking to eyewitnesses. This is a work of history. In the ancient world, and this is not a unique example, this is a biography how you write biography of significant people. It was the cultural genre that the evangelists were all, were all uh, familiar with. And so that he talked to ministers of the word, teachers, apostles, while well, he was with Paul, and that he investigated everything, which means is that he asked questions. He went around and talked to people. Clearly, he had, um, he had access to the gospel of Mark. Uh, Probably Luke um, was written because someone sponsored uh, Luke to write it, and that probably is Theophilus. Um, In the ancient world, names meant something they sometimes do in our world, like Yeshua, Jesus means God saves. Um, And so Theophilus, friend of God, is someone who apparently takes their religious life very seriously. And at the heart of it is not about blind faith, just accepting it because um, Luke says it. Luke says, I've actually gone around and talked to people who saw these events. He uses the word um, uh, eyewitness, which I think is from the Greek word autopi, which is where we get the word autopsy from. Um, But Luke is not a videography. It's not like what reality TV pretends to be, that somehow you're you're invited to follow around someone with a video camera so you you actually see what happens, but you all know that's a bunch of nonsense. The Gospels are all the events of Jesus' life told through the faith of the church, because facts on their own... Jesus just plopped down in the middle of the street without any backstory. What could you possibly make of him? And so understanding Jesus through the background of the Old Testament, which Luke clearly talks about. You remember in the story of Emmaus, where Jesus explains to Cleopas and the other man on the road to Emmaus, how the Old Testament referred to him, that understanding Jesus interpreted through these stories that are ancient, expressed through language, abstract symbols. All of these are the component parts of what makes it possible to say that we know God with certainty. Um, And what it does is it creates a group, a culture. We call it the Catholic Church. In a broader sense, Christianity. In a broader sense, the Judeo-Christian tradition. In a broader sense, the people of the book. But it's proper interpretation that's at the heart of actual, reasonable knowing. Um, And so, the way Luke starts out his gospel is to tell you that this is based on eyewitness testimony and that you can trust this. So by the time you get to chapter 4, you already know so much more about Jesus and his background than probably the people in that synagogue did. You know, without our ability to think abstractly, by metaphor, by simile, to pass stories along, to say Jesus is like a new David, Jesus is like a new Adam, without that human capacity, God's revelation to us would be impossible. But on the flip side, that capacity is also How it is we participate in the life of God and so let's think about this because it tells us so much of why mass is important and liturgy is important in forming our community and how we deal with our our parishes and our church uh, as a group and a community and how it is we understand how we should uh, interact with the world and so now we're going to turn to the first reading from Nehemiah which is really about the roots of liturgy. Mass is a form of liturgy. It's the fundamental Catholic form of liturgy. Liturgy is work that we as a group do together as the body of Christ. When we participate in the work of the liturgy, it forms us and by our work, it changes the world. The roots of how we understand liturgy, which is ritualistic behavior made possible by our capacity for abstract reasoning really has its roots in the people of israel in the old testament the first reading is from the book of the prophet nehemiah nehemiah was a governor of judea in the fifth century bc he was appointed by the persian emperor and the scene in the first reading is nehemiah instructing ezra a prophet to stand and read to the people of God, um, the uh, probably the book of Deuteronomy, and it says in the reading that men and women and children, um, who are old enough to understand, stood from morning to noon while Ezra read the law to them. Um, standing as you're reading the law is this form, of this ritual form of showing respect for God's word. And then it says at the end that when Ezra had finished, the people bowed with their faces to the ground. And then after they had finished reverencing God's word, they had this communal meal together. And it said that out of the communal meal, meal, they provided food for those who did not have the opportunity to prepare any for themselves. What does that sound like to you? Uh, Liturgy of the word and then liturgy of food it sounds like the roots of our Catholic Mass, which goes right back to Jesus in the Last Supper, where they would read the story of the people of Israel and the Exodus. They would sing psalms just like we do. Then they celebrated this meal of of the Eucharist, and we've been doing this ever since. And it's what forms our community. It forms what the in group is. What it means to be a Catholic. And so it's formation in an unusual way though, isn't it? Because in these last 2,000 years, our job is to bring other people to that meal, to that experience of formation, where you hear Luke's appeal to our reason by talking about historically what God has done for us. while at the same time, you have the promises of God about what God will do for us. It forms how we understand our past and how we understand our future. And that for Jesus, who practiced open table fellowship with Pharisees, tax collectors, and sinners, adulterous women would clean his feet with their hair and their tears. It's an example of what Jesus's group ought to look like. And so, When you see these formations of tribes within the Catholic Church, what you're seeing is the capacity for even something as beautiful as the liturgy um, to, to still be distorted by our darkness. What ought to be happening in our lives is that we ought to be participating in the liturgy with an understanding of what the meaning is That that meaning is rooted especially in the teaching authority of the church. And the teaching authority of the church is itself not an abstraction. It's actually people, the Holy Father and the bishops and the priest. And that if they can honor their communion with each other, bring us to the wealth of Scripture and to the meal, then we have a way out, a way that we can use our capacity for abstract thinking to engage creatively and faithfully into the own meaning of our lives. Blombo's Cave. Blombo's Cave somehow is this archaeological artifact of this fundamental human experience and capacity for reason and abstract thinking. And so when we look in the past and how science helps us understand we remember we're seeing the same picture we see in the scriptures and that is light and dark interacting abstract reasoning some message there in that red ochre and then right outside the door ritual cannibalism so we're supposed to love one another we're supposed to be open to life and life abundantly because in the gospel today jesus has proclaimed an acceptable year, a jubilee year that began there in Israel 2,000 years ago and extends to the present time. If you participate in God's word and God's sacrament. This has been Oro Valley Catholic. God bless you. Pray for me and I'll pray for you.